Welcome to Nerds of the Roundtable, a podcast on a quest for quality pop culture. I'm Jamie. And I'm Dwayne. And I'm Sammy. <laughs> we dialing up the enthusiasm this week? <laughs> Are you well, we got to dial something up because this week we're reviewing 1985's Lady Hawk. So we're yes. definitely dialing something up. Matthew Broderick, <laughs> Rutger Hauer, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Alfred Molina. Yep. Kind of. Kind of. He just did it for, for a minute. I, I saw him on the cast list. I was not prepared for what he was doing, though. <laughs> well, like I said earlier, he did not clean up well after he drug himself off the spikes from Murders of the Lost Ark. Nope. <laughs> well, guys, before we delve into this classic, totally 80s take on uh, medieval mythology i think we should keep it 100 it's time to keep it 100 100 100 100 jamie you're leading off okay i was full my time rep thanks for uh give me a second there <laughs> i was not ready all right here we go three two one okay my keeping 100 this week is the haunting of bly manor Um, It's the second season of the Haunting Anthology series on Netflix. And um, it's starring a lot of the same cast um, as the first season of Haunting of Hill House. I'm pretty sure I'm saying all those names wrong. But but some of the performances were very good. Like one of my favorite characters in the first season is one of the ones that came back for the second season. And he's blowing me away with how good the performance is. But it's they've, they've kind of even amped up the creepy. And it's one of those shows where there's like, well, there's kids involved and I, I guess maybe it's the, the dad in me or just becoming an old dude and you want to protect young people. Um, but they go in inter- interesting directions with the kids, not just the kids' performances, but like even like the storylines for the children. And it's just, it's a fascinating show. They change the time period. They change the location. They're in England now. And it's a, honestly, it's a creepy show. I mean, even, way more than Hill House. And it's just fascinating. And I'm about four episodes in. I think there's eight episodes. Um, and if it, if it weren't for life, I'd have watched them all by now. I mean, it's a very compelling season. So, Bly Manor, I'll be recommended. Awesome. And, okay. and, you know, you're not much of like a, a horror guy, so for, for you to say you really enjoy it, that's something. Um, it's, it's a show I only watched because my wife wanted to really badly, and I just kind of like, all right, I'll just, if it gets, you know, too much for me, I'll grab my tablet and I'll read some comic books or something. But, like... <laughs> And so that, that was how Hill House was. I just I was watching it, you know, for her because I don't I don't I don't watch horror. I, it's not my thing. Um, but it, the first season was so good. I was like, she was like, "We're Blind Manor," and she's like, "We're gonna watch Blind Manor, right?" I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> absolutely." <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Well, scary shows on Netflix, especially that involve children, are tons of fun, as we have learned with Stranger Things. But that's not what is going to be my keeping it 100. <clears throat> I've kind of uh, laid off of this one uh, because a, a friend has not started it yet, but I learned during our pre-show that he has started it. And uh, <laughs> we'll talk about uh, The Mandalorian Season 2. Uh, we're about five episodes in as of today. <clears throat> a lot of stuff changed on this episode. And we're really getting to know the child. We're really getting to know some background on Mando. We're getting some some characters that we've been familiar with coming 
back from season one and being introduced from other shows. I'm going to leave it with this. Jamie. Moss and Michael Bean. I'm just going <laughs> to leave it right there. So uh, check it out. Uh, Mandalorian season two on Disney plus. That's going to be my keeping it 100 short and sweet. I've got a question. Does he put blue milk in his smarty cereal in the star Wars universe? <laughs> <laughs> well, considering he Moss is playing a droid, uh, he definitely has turned it off and back on, I would say. <laughs> okay. All right. So I guess I will finish this up on keeping it 100 starting now. Uh, for this week, uh, I'm heading back across the pond. But this time, it's not Doctor Who. Uh, despite all the drawbacks of 2020, the one thing we can do is celebrate the 100th anniversary of Agatha Christie's first novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. And in celebration of that, Britbox has created an original documentary to kind of focus on some of Christie's biggest novels. And this was a really cool thing to watch. Um, I really enjoyed it. You know, it pulls in all the intrigue, but it, without giving away all the endings and twists, it just makes you want to read those books. Um, I was very excited to see the parts of the trailer for the next Agatha Christie adaptation, Death on the Nile, which follows up uh, Kenneth Branagh's uh, Poirot character, uh, this time alongside Gal Gadot and Army Hammer. So uh, maybe at some point we'll get, eventually get to see that movie. Um, but the documentary was really good. I enjoyed it. It's called Agatha Christie, 100 Years of Poirot and Miss Marple. Um, and it was really good. So uh, and that's my keep. That's the reason it's my keeping it 100. <laughs> well, I'm an Agatha Christie fan, so I, I'm not subscribed to BritBox, but I want to watch that. It was really interesting. It's It's got like the great-grandson that's over the estate now that's talking about it. It's got a number of uh, actors that have been in um, different adaptations as far as television and movies and stuff. So it was really, really cool to kind of watch. And like I said, they didn't give anything away from the books. They didn't give away endings, plot twists. They just made it interesting. It made you really want to read the stuff. So it was cool. Okay. Well, let's dive into our opening thoughts and grades uh, for this movie, Lady Hawk. Um, <clears throat> 1985, as I said before, Matthew Broderick, Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, Rutger Hauer, quite a few other people, and Alfred Molina for a minute. Guys, I really had, you know, I, I probably haven't seen this movie since, I would say, 1987, probably maybe 88. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been a minute and i really had some fond memories i remember this epic adventure i remember these characters uh you know yearning and longing and and really uh, developing that was not the movie i saw this time. <laughs> um <clears throat> 
the epic score, um, you know, back then turned out to be a, a synth score worthy of an NES uh, RPG. And we have this highly stylized 80s take on the medieval times. Everything's dirty but the people. Their clothes are filthy. Their surroundings are filthy, but they're immaculate. Their hair's gelled, permed, combed, you know. Uh, they're, you know they're, they're fresh. Their teeth are great. Um, just not quite, you know, meshing up there. But, uh, yeah, this was something that I was really floored. I really wish uh, that I could have kept my fond memories. I wish that uh, that I could have kept that uh, illusion of delusion um, <laughs> about this. But, man, this movie really, really brought me down. Um, I, I, I would say even as, as low as a D minus. Uh, on the grid. I really, I really suffered with this thing. And, and I really was like, wow. And, and, and I, you know, and I know it was made in an era for an era. <clears throat> and I'll tell you, I was the child of the eighties. You know, I had the, I had the spandex shorts with the neon on them. I had the, you know, I had the bike with the neon paint splattered on it. I did myself. I had the skateboard. I had, you know, I had the mullet. I didn't have a mullet. I had the mullet. Um, <clears throat> you know, I had the I had the Michael Jackson glittery glove. But yeah, this this movie is about as cool as those things were when you look back on it. <laughs> so, 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 Dwayne, what you're saying is, Lady Hawk is your Men in Black. <laughs> uh, uh, apparently, yeah, this was yeah, this was rough. <clears throat> this was rough. I, you know, and, and like I said, I, I love Matthew Broderick. I love Rutger Hauer. Love these characters. You know, Michelle Pfeiffer has always, you know, acting wise, lent a bit to be, you know, needed. But <clears throat> yeah, it, this uh, this was a sufferable watch. I, I was expecting diversity of opinion. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> okay well you know we've we've made mention this is totally an 80s movie right and you know the 80s was very memorable for their genres and we we've touched on a number of those right we've got teen humor flicks with the brack pack we've got snl and second city comedians who get uh who gain stardom and get their own movies happening. Um, but fantasy was a big thing in the eighties, right? Tons of fantasy movies, Hawk, the Slayer, the Beastmaster, Conan, the Barbarian, the dark crystal legend, princess bride, Willow. Right. And then you got lady Hawk. Um, you know, lady Hawk has an interesting premise. You know, you've got a lot of stock characters, Monks and thieves and knights and princesses. It's like a it's like a game of D and D essentially, without any trolls and you know stuff like that. Uh, but you know, it kind of works somewhat. There's some twists on those elements that makes it kind of interesting. Uh, portions of this, I think, could be the next story Peter Falk reads to Fred Savage. You know, there's there's definitely some things there. Um, but it is totally an '80s movie uh, from the synth rock score. To some of the filming choices. Um, I didn't go as low as as, as, as Dwayne, but my grade was a C plus. <laughs> okay. Um, 
I'm, I'm intrigued by the discussion that's about to follow. Um, <laughs> so you both mentioned the score. The score is atrocious. Uh, it's well, can, can I dive in here one minute? And I, and I made a note of this, and it was one of the things that kind of held us up on the pre-show looking up, but I forgot to mention to remind. Alan Parsons of the Alan Parsons Project. In studio engineer Alan Parsons. If you have heard any modern music, you have heard Alan Parsons. Any hit top 40, you've heard him. He is phenomenal. I don't know what happened here. <laughs> Go ahead, not, Jeremy. Sorry. But it's not just that the score is bad, it doesn't suit the movie. And I remember there's like this one scene where it goes like a normal sort of orchestral score. I'm like, hey, they must have found a few extra dollars in the budget to get an actual score. And then like it's one scene that goes back to the synth score as soon as it's over. But it's a it's distractingly bad. Um, It's it's kind of slower paced. It drags at times. Um, The action can be pretty uninspired in some of the scenes. Uh, Some of the characterization and character like sort of. You know, motivations through the movie are inconsistent. But it's a charming movie. Um, I like the characters. Um, the main story, the premise, like the, the, the gimmick that you grant them at the beginning of the movie, it works for me. Um, it's not a great movie. It's a deeply, deeply flawed movie. But I like it. B. <laughs> I'm giving it B? a B. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, you, you touched on something, Jamie, I'd like to, to come back to. And being a music fan, you know, we, we mentioned Alan Parsons, you know, synth score. Uh, it does not, it is so not Michigan, so apart from what the movie looks like. I mean, you, and you, now we even bought into A Knight's Tale, mm-hmm. which is set in, you know, this roundabout era here and it has you know they're singing queen songs and you have david bowie during the the banquet you know and it works but this man i don't know what what he was scoring i don't know what they told him he was scoring <laughs> like they just like he let them borrow outtakes from recording or something like it didn't work i mean <clears throat> Yeah, it really wasn't really really wasn't great. Well, you know, uh, we've we've kind of talked about our opening thoughts and grades. I think we probably want to uh, get something that the gentleman who was sitting by the sewer drain that the mouse escape through had. I think, uh, and, and something I'm gonna probably try to struggle with getting here. I, I think we need to see if we can find a fan for this thing. Oh. Do you want me to do three fans and let you all sit this one out? No, I've, I've got a fan. I've got okay. a fan. So, so I'll lead us off, okay? Um, you know, I think my biggest fan with this movie is the way that it does have that fairy tale convention to it. 
there's so many conventions. I know it's it's supposed to be more fantasy based, but in some ways it feels more fairy tale. You know, two lovers separated by the rising and setting of the sun. This magical curse that keeps them apart. Uh, the young brigand who who serves as really the eyes and ears of the audience, right? You know, Matthew Broderick is our in. He he's the 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 person I get the character that feels more like us. You know, and so we could he's our our, our end to the movie. Um, you know, on this on the surface, these are things that sometimes can maybe be played, maybe overused, let's just say it that way. But there's something comfort food almost about this type of plot. Um, and I did like that. And I love how Donner uses Philippe's monologues to lead us through the story. And to me, that that was a highlight. You know, I know I gave it a C plus, but that really pulled it up. I liked that. I thought that was fun. So, uh, you know, humor and story movement all in the same monologue. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, my, mine is the premise itself. Um, the, the, like you mentioned the fairy tale premise. I mean, it's that. The, that there was this amazing love story, this, you know, love for the ages. Um, and because of a villain who we will return to, um, who makes some sort of bargain with some sort of entity that we will we will return to that? Um, they said they're separated by jealousy and magic, and that he is you know by day he's you know Navarre he's the knight, at night he turns into the wolf. By day she's the hawk, and she turns in, back into you know herself, Isabeau, at night. And that that separation, that 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 sort of fairy tale logic, works in the middle of this you know rather serious story. Like um, outside of that one thing you you grant them it's a pretty straightforward story mm-hmm. and there's not there's not magic everywhere there's not dragons or griffins or anything it's just there's this one element and it works and so and i, I find their relationship and especially that that one moment where we see them glimpsing each other at that that one i don't remember if it was daybreak or dusk i, I can't remember but it, it worked for me and i i just I, I felt i really felt for these characters and that that premise really sucked me and i think it pulled me through the movie too really really feeling for their their, their predicament so that that's my thing cool well, I think we're sort of uh, all three for three here. Um, I'm going to, uh, Sammy, uh, you and Jamie, as usual, more eloquently stated what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it this way. Twola! <laughs> you know, this is that fairy tale. It is that, you know, y- your lovers are destined, but they're separated by a circumstance, uh, a curse by the uh, bishop uh, not really. Uh, I, I didn't quite understand how and, and why this all happened. It seemed like everybody was in love with her, but uh, yeah, just just that fairy tale premise that they that they you know laid out and stuck with, and like most fairy tales, everything else is pretty normal and straightforward, but you have this one fantastical circumstance, mm-hmm. and and that and that, that really kind of made it. So that that's that's my fan. Cool. All right. Well, I think the next session is going to be a little easier for everyone. Um, hopefully there are no pans near the sewer, but we'll try to find some for this episode. All right. Well, I'm not eat- if it was near the sewer, I'm not eating off that pan. Nope. <laughs> um, I, I'm first. Uh, this movie needed a better villain. Uh, it just that that the whole thing with the bishop just did not work for me. Um, he didn't really seem wicked enough. Like if he was more lecherous, like, I mean, if he was doing horrible things with all the nuns at the manor or something, it might make sense of him, you know, you know, 
lusting after Isabeau and, you know, having that kind of like maniacal bent toward her or something. It would have made more sense. He just, he didn't seem, I mean, he seemed like maybe corrupt, but not necessarily like evil enough to cut deals with devils and stuff. It's like, mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't see that. Uh, and there didn't seem anything magical about him. He just struck me as corrupt bureaucrat. Um, so we, we needed something more. Maybe somebody just straight up mustache twirling. I mean, <laughs> or just outwardly despicable in, in another way. And I don't think it was the actor. I think that, that part was just really underwritten. And I think this movie would have been maybe more compelling for people, not me, um, if we'd had a better villain. I mean, I think if Tim Curry had been in that role in 1985, mm-hmm. how, di- how differently that they would have just, the tension in the movie would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and you totally could have believed him. You know, <laughs> could deals with demons and stuff. <laughs> uh, but I, so the, the the pan for me is this movie. It just absolutely had to have a better villain um, to make the story work for you know a broader audience. You know, they really didn't go into who the source of of, of the magic, so to speak. You know, who was the 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 wielder of this power? You know. Think about, you know, a Maleficent type of character from Sleeping Beauty or something to that effect that could have been used, you know, and, and used to, to some degree well, I think, in something like this. Well, a lot of what Jamie said, I think, is how the story really suffers is you don't really have any, uh, you know, polar characters. Mm-hmm. They're all just kind of middling. You know, they're all just, you know, he's, none of them are really, truly evil. None of them are really, truly great. They're just kind of, you know, average folk. And I think the movie suffers for that. But my pan, guys, Sam, it's not going to be popular with you because it was one of the things that you love. But my pan (laughs) is going to be Matthew Broderick's constant (laughs) dialogue. Blah, 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 blah. I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to God. I'm talking to whoever will listen. I'm talking to the audience. I'm supposed to be the guy that you follow, but I just couldn't get in with his constant jabbering. Um. I love Matthew Broderick. I love War Games. I love Bueller. I love him as adult Simba in The Lion King. But man, him just yammering on and on and on in this movie. Give me a break. (laughs) I understand your grade now. Yeah, because <laughs> if you don't get on board with, with Philippe in this movie, this movie yeah. is not yeah, worth. Yeah, if you don't get on board with that dialogue, you know, and if you can't identify with that, then it's just not working. And from the get go, I mean, from the minute he pops his head up out of the water in the sewer, <laughs> oh, thank you, God! I'm, I, I promise, I'll never pickpocket again. Oh, you know how weak I am, God. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, I guess, Dwayne, if he would have said, curse my medieval body, maybe you would have liked him. <laughs> I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, because Star Wars he, reference in he there. plays that role. It'd be very similar to like R2 and 3PO. I think in George Lucas's Star Wars movies, you know, I think that's what Philippe is. Yeah. Oh, well, he is entirely, he is entirely RN. Yeah. He is entirely, uh, you know, the, the, the stand in for the audience. He is our guide through this movie. And if you can identify and get on board with him, then you're just not on the same train. Mm -hmm. You're going to a different stop. I was going to a different stop, apparently. (laughs) So 
I, see, I thought that by, by the end, he is he is C-3PO and the older monk is R2-D2. By mm-hmm. the end of the movie, <laughs> yeah. I thought you would have enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, now I did like when uh, it was Imperious. Uh, Imperious. He, he, yeah, when he come along, he, it kind of gave uh, a good juxtaposition to him. You had these these two polar uh, characters. Uh, you know, they, they kind of worked well, but yeah, by that point, I was ready to just gouge my eyes out. You're out. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. you know, I, I checked the time. I will, I will tell you this. I checked the time midway, you know, partway through the movie, and I was like, "Oh my god, I've got another hour." <laughs> hey, I know this doesn't really do with fans and pans either one, but can you all believe this was an '80s fantasy movie that was two hours long? Two hours long. Yeah, as you look at a lot of the run times on, on fantasy or action movies in the 80s, I mean, you're looking at 68, you know, 90 minutes. Yeah. You know, I think Jamie had mentioned with Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, you know, they cut it down to like what is like just, just above a made-for-TV movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah, two I was hours a movie. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Guys, you know, my pan, we've actually already discussed it. Uh, the score was the worst thing for me in this. It is just so jarring. Uh, It's almost like they were scoring an anime instead of a fantasy movie. You know, that's really what it felt like to me was 80s anime as opposed to 80s fantasy. And for some reason, it just wasn't jiving at all. Uh, And the sad thing is, you know, this is a time period where we've got John Williams putting together these major scores. And like, this is a Warner Brothers movie. This isn't some, you know, run of the mill type of movie studio. This isn't, you know, whatever. I can't remember one of the, the cheaper, you know, ones that, that kind of came out during that time. But, you know, you had those studios, you got, the, you know, dimension when they just started out, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you get this type of stuff, but this is a Warner Brothers, Right. This isn't. This is not Warner Brothers material when it comes to this score, and to me, that just right from the beginning. And you know, the synth thing is an '80s deal. I get it. You see it in a lot of '80s movies, but it does not fit this movie at all. And and I just found myself going, "Ooh!" Every time the music started, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was it was distracting. How bad it was, yes. and how, how and how poorly it was a fit for this movie. I mean, it, it was distracting. Uh, I gave this movie a B, and it was despite the score. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing uh, I know didn't win any awards was the score. But I think we've got some awards uh, that we uh, hand out for our show. So, guys, let's get ready for those. All right, I'm back with the box. Okay, just set it down on the table. Uh, <clears throat> we have our we have our staples, and we have a couple uh, episode specifics. So I'm going to lead off with best performance. Uh, best performance. There's there's some performances to choose from, but uh, uh, an actor I think who is very underrated. Um, and I think he's underrated because he plays things pretty close most of the time. I think he's kind of labeled as a strong man, 
but I believe Rutger Hauer can really show some depth. Um, I, I think he can express some feeling. I know we saw him in uh, Blade Runner, uh, really, you know, shine. I've seen him in a few other things. He he done great in the uh, Nolan Batman movies, but I think he done a really. He was one of the highlights of this movie. Uh, was Rutger Hauer's performance for me. Nice. I'm going to go ahead and jump in because I agree. That's who I picked. And I think there was an extra level of difficulty here. And I think it might be the reason the villain doesn't work. Rutger Hauer was not supposed to be Navar. Um, Kurt Russell was supposed to be Navar. And he quit and walked off the set right before they started filming. Rutger Hauer was supposed to be the captain of the guard. He was not supposed to be in this role whatsoever. And I'm oh, guessing wow. maybe maybe the villain thing doesn't work because there was supposed to be a tag team of bad guys. Because Rutger Hauer would have been a much bigger character as the Captain of the Guard than the guy that was in that part. And he's right. traditionally been the bad guy. Yeah. And so I think him switching roles at the last second and doing such a good job, I think, it really impressed me. Especially once I found out the circumstances. It's pretty impressive he turned in such a good performance on such short notice. So yeah. Rutger Howard's my best performance as well. Yeah, so he did a behind-the-scenes a heel face turn. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, though, I think you know Rutger Howard did a great job. And despite the fact that Dwayne disliked Philippe, I'm giving my best performance to Matthew Broderick's Philippe Gaston. Cue the Beauty and the Beast song. No one lies no like Gaston. Like Gaston. No one, yeah, no one <laughs> lies like Gaston. Yeah, but um, no one talks l- like Gaston. Yeah, <laughs> and never stops like Gaston. Uh, but that levity, that humor, to me was so important. He felt like the only real person in the movie for me. Everybody else felt like a fantasy character to the point that they were 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 apart. I couldn't really connect with any of them so he was relatable you know the candid talks with god i know he went on a lot (laughs) but just it works so perfectly for me okay and just it fits this medieval period you know so i just i I dug him i thought he was cool so (laughs) i i think that he added a nice touch because um a lot of you know medieval fantasy type movies don't really take seriously how religious Mm-hmm. medieval europe yeah. really was and yeah. so i think i think philippe i mean there's, there's a i mean it's a done in a you know goofy manner but there's, there's a real there's a, a realism to that character i mean people were i mean very profoundly religious in that era mm-hmm. i mean and you think about this is this is i think like 30 years after the black death ended yeah so yeah, yeah. god's probably on people, a lot of people's minds i mean <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I, I don't guess it's the it's the you know the content of what he was saying and the the context of it you know him speaking to God like that, but just a constant. Oh my gosh! Okay, go ahead, <laughs> Sam. Sam, you're up with best scene. All right. Um, you know we mentioned Alfred Molina is in this for like two hot seconds, right? But he is in one of the best scenes of the movie. Mm-hmm. I love when Isabeau confronts Cesar in the forest. And for that moment, the way that Donner cuts it, you're wondering, is this Navarre's loop and form 
in the 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 in the trap, right? And, and it you're you're tense at that moment, and I love it. And the fact that Cesar has this grisly end that that is so apropos for him as a character, and the fact that Isabeau does it by just kicking him, and he falls over into the trap with his yeah. head. Uh, I mean, it's just it's, it was a great scene. I loved it. <laughs> Uh, um, well, I'll, I'll jump in next as we let the uh, air get dead. Um, <laughs> both of us being polite to each other, they're doing. Um, I re- I was really struck, and I'm I'm probably just a big softy, but the reunion between Navarre and Isabeau really got to me. Um, it wasn't like the room wasn't dusty; it didn't get to that level. This wasn't this wasn't Rudy finally getting to get in the game at the end of you know the movie. It wasn't that level, um, but it was touching. I thought it was very well acted. Um, I thought it was sort of the proper fairy tale love story ending, um, and it was like, and it had that whole like you know disaster barely averted. And then they get their happy ending. I thought it, I, I thought it worked really well. Yep. <clears throat> you know, I, I, uh, I, I want to mention this real quick. Okay, I really think at that scene when he picks her up, I wonder if that was in the script. Because when he does that, she screams out like a real person would. Like she was not expecting for him to grab <laughs> her and hoist her into the air. Um, and, and like I said, I don't know if that was in the script. I don't know if that was something Donner wanted. But, you know, Howard strikes me as the type of, of, of actor that will ad lib. And, you know, we talked about in Blade Runner and all that. But um, I don't know. There was just something about when he did that. Her reaction seemed really real. And, you know, Michelle, I know she's an actor. I get it. But uh, just her reaction seemed like, you know, like a person would feel if they just got grabbed and thrown up in the air real quick. (laughs) Well, my favorite scene is when um, uh, Matthew comes up to the uh, comes up to the uh, castle where Imperius is. And Imperius comes out to the top. And I was expecting him to start asking him about sparrows. And, uh, and, you know, carrying coconuts, but, uh, no, in all seriousness, uh, I, um, as far as the, the, the best scene goes, uh, I liked, uh, the initial scene when they go to the farmhouse and they're spending the night and, uh, you see the wolf for the first time, you know, that, that reveal is, is, is pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that reveal was pretty neat, but the, yeah, the, when they're spending the, the evening at the farmhouse, yeah, and then Michelle Pfeiffer pops up, it's like, "Oh, what's what, where did this person come from? And am I am I dreaming? You know, there's a wolf. And, you know, he's he has this whole inner dialogue going on. It wasn't very inner. It was very right. outer. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that was the problem. <laughs> All right. Well, our next award is best character, and I get to go first, and we're just going to scar Dwayne, Sammy. I'm going with Philippe. I like the little guy. <laughs> I, I found him very amusing, and I, I think I think my wife was with you there, Dwayne. I, I mean, I think we were about five minutes in, and she looked over and goes, "Is he going to do this the whole movie?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, I, I just I I I kind of feel where he's coming from. Like he's in some very bizarre circumstances, and he just recognizes the, the true level of the bizarre that's going on around him. I just I got a kick out of him. I like I like the. <laughs> You got to process this. <laughs> well, I'm I'm gonna go with the uh, the hawk was really convincing uh, that it was able to transform into Michelle Pfeiffer. 
um, you know, really seemed like it was a feral hunting, you know, hawk, uh, you know, not, not really a gem. I'm going with the hawk. Okay. Um, you know, for me, there is something about Imperius that I really liked. He works well. That type of character works well in, in, in a fantasy tale, right? Um, there's a redemption art for this character. I think that's part of what I liked about him. Um, the idea that he was, was the, you know, the priest that, that told the bishop about this, this love affair. Uh, he was the one that betrayed, you know, Navarre and Isabeau. And, and, you know, he accepts his folly and he wants to atone for it. And I just, I like that part of the character, you know, and he's just kind of that gruff, no-nonsense, Friar Tuck type of character that just comes across well in, in fantasy. Mm-hmm. So uh, Leo McKern's Imperius was my best character. And he was really good with Matthew Broderick. They played mm-hmm. well off of each other. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they had a good chemistry. They had a good chemistry. Which brings us to best quote. Graphically novel. Three brothers tackle a different graphic novel each week. Listen as the brothers Fugit discuss classic and not-so-classic graphic novels. Subscribe now on your podcast feed of choice. Graphically novel. Three brothers who like each other but love comics. And uh, from a character that never shuts up, I actually uh, picked one of his lines. Um, you know, Philippi says, Sir, I talk to God all the time and he's never mentioned you. <laughs> And Dre's like, yes, he does talk all the time. Yeah, he does so. talk to God all the time. <laughs> Clearly. Well, I'm going to jump in and follow you up with another Philippe conversation with the Lord. Um, he says, Lord, I'll never pick another pocket again as long as I live. I swear it. <laughs> but here's the problem. You've got to let me live. How can I prove my good faith to you? If you've heard me, this ledge will remain steady as a rock. And that thing coming at me won't be what I think it is. If it is, there's no hard feelings, of course. But I'd be very disappointed. <laughs> yes Jamie I am so glad that you picked that because mine follows that (laughs) after he picks the guard's pocket after that 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 big diatribe there I know I promise Lord never again and I also know that you know that I'm a weak-willed person or how (laughs) weak-willed I am That was my backup. I had trouble with both those. <laughs> yeah, that, those were good ones. Uh, I would like to mention one from the bishop uh, that, that really caught me off guard. He says, I do believe in miracles, Margaret. It's part of my job. <laughs> it's like you wouldn't believe in him if it wasn't required. It was a job requirement. <laughs> there were about five or six really good ones. Most of them were Philippe, but there were some good ones. Yeah. yeah. Yep. All right, well, our next award is the Best Terrible Special Effect. Um, <laughs> there's some real options. Uh, Sammy, what, um, what failed to knock your socks off the most? Okay. <laughs> it has to be the transformation of Isabeau from human form to hawk as she's falling off the monastery tower. <laughs> that scene is awful. And the worst thing is, they have had morphine technology since the 1940s. I mean, they figured out how to do this in in The Wolfman in 1941 to show Lon Chaney Jr. change into The Wolfman. But they could not figure out how to make this look halfway decent 
except this weird cut scene looks something from Star Wars the Holiday Special 70s feel. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that scene was awful. <laughs> well. well. Well, mine was after the um, the hawk supposedly got shot by an arrow. And we spent like the next 15 minutes with a hawk lying next to an arrow. He didn't even look remotely <laughs> like the arrow was in the hawk. It was just wrapped up in the, like the rags next to it. It looked so bad. They didn't even try to disguise it. Just just put it close by. <laughs> <clears throat> well, uh, mine is uh, supposed to be a one of these pull at your heartstrings moments. It's supposed to bring a tear to your eye, but it's the mutual delayed transformation <laughs> where they're 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 laying there in like the snow pit, you know, and uh, and he turns to human form, but she hasn't quite yet. Tur- she hasn't turned into her hawk form yet, and they see each other, and then the and then it just glares of light to to disguise the transformations. I'm just like really. Just not even trying. <laughs> and the way they slowly had the eyes change into the animal eyes. Yeah. 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 That part. Yeah. But yeah, just, just, yeah, that was, I was just like, okay, guys, this, this could be a really heart wrenching moment and you're just dropping the ball all over the court. <laughs> we know that the lighting in that scene looked like maybe they stuck a lava lamp in between them and, and filmed it the way that lighting was working. It was probably, uh, it was probably a, uh, J.J. Abrams figured out how to do the lens flares. <laughs> yeah, the the emotion of that scene worked for me, but the, I mean, you're right. The effects are so bad. Yeah. Rutger yeah. Howard, Michelle Pfeiffer sell that scene enough that I roll with it, but the effects right. are terrible. But the effects are awful, but you'd say, oh yeah, they're really, you see the desire, you see the want, the longing, the love, but the effects are falling off the wagon. So bad. <laughs> <laughs> Our last award this week is the best proto Ferris Bueller moment. I was yeah, surprised. At, <laughs> I was surprised this was before Ferris Bueller because he is being he's being Ferris Bueller in this movie. Yep, uh, he is just religious Ferris Bueller. Um, <laughs> but my but my best proto Ferris Bueller moment was when Philippe tries to leave <laughs> and he's making this big speech about how Navarre won't kill him for just being what he is. And that he won't go back to the city. He's not going to do it. And then the knife hits the tree next to his face. And he just goes, very smoothly, nonchalantly, I'll gather the firewood. He just, <laughs> just, just comes off so smoothly that it felt like a Ferris Bueller moment. Well, I don't know about you all, but I, I felt like constantly we needed a chicka chicka. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know. Obviously, and, and, and Jamie, you're right. I mean, this is before Bueller, but the monologues themselves could have been, you know, it's medieval Ferris Bueller. I mean, it really is. And, and I think that's the the best, those kind of moments is when he is monologuing, he's breaking that fourth wall. Very similar. I know he's talking to God, but in some ways he's talking to us, as think, as an audience also. And he breaks that fourth wall. And that is something that we so connect to Ferris Bueller. I mean, even to the point, I mean, face it, even Deadpool played off that, 
you know, <laughs> with Ferris Bueller there at the end of the, that movie. Um, so, I mean, it's, and it's just, it's typical Ferris Bueller that they brought into this. And, and I think you could see here where, you know, John Hughes was probably watching Lady Hawk and going, yeah, that's my guy. Yeah, that's the one I want. <laughs> Him. <laughs> well, um, I liked uh, and it's not really any particular one scene. I think there's a couple of them but where Philip is telling God, you know, what a great person he is. You know how how cool it would be if God would you know would help him out there, and you know he he would he could really help help you out, and uh, just how full of himself he he is. Uh, that that was the things that really struck me with being very Bueller-istic. Mm-hmm. Um, well, gentlemen, it's time in the show. Our Lady Hawk special, a character actor. On par with nobody in this movie. He's way <laughs> light years ahead. We don't need him to turn into a wolf to save the day. We don't need him to turn into a hawk to fly away with our hearts. Our beloved Keanu Reeves has to connect to Lady Hawk in some way. This might bring this movie up from a D minus. Jamie. Where does Keanu connect? Well, first of all, I want to say that I'm very proud of you guys for not um, taking the easy route, making a Duran Duran hungry like the wolf reference this entire show. <laughs> I, I know you're a little older than me, and it was right in your wheelhouse. It was low hanging fruit, and you left it sitting there. I'm proud yep, of you. Yeah, it didn't mess with it. <laughs> but my favorite part of this week's Keanu connection are the job titles of our guy this week. He's done some interesting stuff. And he just keeps working. So here are, here are a few. Abominable snowman. Additional voices guy. He was that a lot. Bash. Reporter number three. <laughs> One part was just voice talent. <laughs> Bellboy. DJ Bill. Police detective. Uh, most of his live action stuff has been that, you know, that tier of role. But in, in animation, he's done some some bigger things. He was in Kiki's Delivery Service. I think everything that ever had Robo taken the title, he did like several voices in. Uh, My Neighbor Totoro. Uh, but in Lady Hawk, he played the important role of cart driver. <laughs> <laughs> Gregory Snegoff was the cart driver in Lady Hawk. Uh, he also played unnamed weatherman in Point Break, starring our beloved <laughs> Keanu. <laughs> 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 Gregory Snegoff, the unnamed weatherman cart driver, is this week's Keanu connection. Oh, oh. <laughs> Love it. Dude, you had me at Robotech. <laughs> <laughs> you had me at DJ Bill. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, that was our review of Lady Hawk. I hope you had uh, enjoyed our review more than I enjoyed the movie. Um, we uh, look forward to uh, you know bringing you guys quality pop culture. We're 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 trying here. Um, we sometimes don't know where the quality comes from, but you know the holiday season is fast approaching, gentlemen. We've just passed Thanksgiving. We're going into our December month. We're coming up on our nerd advent. Yes. <laughs> 
to lead us off in our nerd advent. Sammy, I believe this movie is your pick. Yes. Tell me how this is a holiday movie, please. <laughs> all right. So, first of all, we are going to be watching 1992's Batman Returns, the second and final film of Tim Burton's Batman series. So, Dwayne, how is this a Christmas movie? The movie takes place in Gotham City at Christmas. It is a Christmas movie. If Die Hard can be, so can Batman Returns. (laughs) Well, Jamie can argue there. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) That was was a very compelling argument, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Well, guys, as we dust off our classic copies of these early 90s Batman fairs, Jamie, till our next episode, what are we going to do? We're going to refuse to shake hands with Danny DeVito as we keep it nerdy. <laughs> <laughs>